do they really believe they're doing the right thing or is it just they, they really okay, do, they really do okay. no no they really do there are occasional voices of reason jay powell was one of them He read my market's briefings that got under the skin of Bill Dudley and Timothy Geithner. They hated the work that I did for Fisher all those years ago, but Powell didn't. He appreciated it. In October 2012, he'd only been on the Federal Reserve Board for two or three months at that point. It was one of his first FOMC meetings, and he said that the Federal Reserve's policy of quantitative easing was inflating a duration bubble across the entire credit spectrum and that quantitative easing could become habit-forming and that if and when the time came to try and extricate themselves and normalize interest rates, he was in the driver's seat trying to do that and to shrink the size of the Fed's balance sheet, that it could be problematic. Well, he discovered what problematic was when the U.S. high-yield bond market shut down for a record 41 days between November the 14th on, which caused all the world regulators, the BIS, everybody collateral backing all of these ETFs was trading by appointment only, spreads gapped out, re redemptions went through the roof, and then we had the Powell pivot. So, but he understood what the Fed was creating, the monster that the Fed was creating when he was a rookie at the Fed back in 2012. For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been a chance to refine my own investment framework through a series of conversations with extraordinary investors in every corner of the world. In this series, I, along with my co-host Robert Carver and Moritz Siebert, want to continue our education by digging deeper into the minds of some of the thought leaders when it comes to how the world economy and global markets really work, to try and learn how they think. We want to understand the experiences that have shaped them, the processes they follow, and the historical events that have influenced them. We also want to ask questions outside our normal rules-based playground. We're not looking for trade ideas or random guesses about an unknown future, but rather knowledge accumulated over the course of decades in the markets to try and make us better informed investors. And we want to share those conversations with you. Our very special guest today is a true Fed insider who always delivers deep, broad, unconventional thinking and who connects the influences of global central bank policy, liquidity flows, and economic data into actionable investment strategies. So I'm sure you will love our conversation with Daniel DiMartino Booth of Quill Intelligence. Daniel, thanks so much for joining us today for a conversation as part of our mini-series Into the World of Global Macro, where we relax our usual systematic or rules-based framework to provide you with a broader context as to where we are in the global and historical framework and perhaps discover some of the trends that may occur in, in the global markets in the next few months or even years, and ultimately how this will impact us as investors and how we should best prepare our portfolios. So we are really excited to dive into many different topics in the next hour or so, not least because you have a very special gift of taking the complexity of economics and making it concise and understandable with a lots of humor. And on top of this, you are very generous when it comes to sharing your views and analysis on Twitter and other platforms. So um, so welcome. Let me kick off with kind of a 30,000 feet question, which we ask all our guests in this series. And it's just to get a little bit of context for the conversation. It's kind of where you think we are in a, in a really big global macro picture because... A lot of what's going on right now feels like things we've seen before, and there's obviously been a lot, a lot of analogies made to previous bubbles and, and so on and so forth. But on top of that, we obviously also have a global pandemic. 
and uh, it makes it all quite an interesting time to uh, to be in our business. So let me just ask you sort of where you think we are in a, in a really big picture right now. So um, I think what people need to realize is that China slowing to a three-decade low rate of growth coming into 2020 prior to the pandemic hitting the global economy was a big story in and of itself. Uh, we get great data out of the Netherlands with a big lag on global trade, but we actually had year-over-year contraction in global trade in 2019 for a full year. If you look back at prior recessions, you have to go back to the one in 1980, and you have to go back to the one in 2007, 2009, the great financial crisis. There were actually shallow recessions in the United States in 90, in 01, when global trade did not contract. And that, I think, is a key component for people to grasp, is that the, the global economy was headed into recession coming into 2020. The number of people moving from Chinese suburbs, urbanization, if you will, massive, massive secular trend was coming to an end. This is having a dramatic impact on the German economy, the world's third largest exporter, and as well as knock-on effects in the United States. You pile the trade war into this pre-existing dynamic in 2019, and you end up with the global economy headed for recession. And at the same time, you have leverage, of course, in a very, very bad place. On February the 21st, just as we were hearing about the first COVID cases in the United States, corporate debt in the United States passed the $10 trillion mark. It had doubled in very slow order, whereas the overabundance of leverage was piled onto the household sector leading up to the financial crisis. This time it was in the corporate sector, which I think is clearly very well known, given the default rates that we've seen unfold in record speed. So my, my high point view is that we were already headed there at a glacially slow pace. And the Federal Reserve's not QE at the time, growing its balance sheet, was keeping financial markets in check. And then COVID happened. Now we have 30.6 million Americans collecting unemployment insurance in some form, whether it's through the CARES Act pandemic, emergency type of unemployment claims, or, or typical state unemployment claims, you have 30.6 million Americans collecting unemployment. That is not filing. Filing was 47 million. We've had millions fall through the cracks in terms of filing for unemployment insurance and receiving it. That 30.6 million today represents an 18.6% percent unemployment rate. We are well past anything in the post-war period. What's critical to know is that a few weeks ago, we reached a peak of 30.9 million Americans collecting unemployment insurance. So it baffles me that there's even fanciful discussion in the financial community about a V-shaped recovery or a U-shaped recovery. I'm going to be writing about it today for tomorrow. We're in a bathtub-shaped recovery right now. We have had 400,000 people fall off of unemployment claims. That's it. That's a rounding error. So we're in the midst of a deep, deep recession. Yeah. No, I mean, it certainly is interesting times. You know, we had Jim Bianco on uh, this series as well, and, and he was talking about how the authorities seem to have this view that as long as they can keep the stock markets going up, and that's why you've had the V, right, then the, the economy will follow. And of course, you being a former Fed insider, just tell me, let's just kick off with, with the Fed and what it's doing and the responses. I mean, there's so much to, to unpack. Uh, so I'll let you decide where you want to start. Well, um, unfortunately, there are no models 
that you can use right now, whether you're inside the Fed or whether you're inside a sell side or a buy side firm. Models need not apply. You can't seasonally adjust anything and compare it to what's happened uh, to the U.S. or to the global economy for that matter. But the Fed is still relying on its models, which dictate that the wealth effect will trickle down into higher lending, that lower borrowing costs. Mary Daly of San Francisco said that the Fed yesterday it said that the Fed was not widening the inequality divide in America and that as long as as they kept interest rates low and did everything that they could, that it would eventually trickle through to households and to, to corporations. Well, last I checked, it's not even trickling through properly. The transmission mechanism is completely stuck to mortgage to mortgage rates. We've seen stubbornly high spreads on the conventional side. Forget about jumbo. Major banks have completely exited the business along with home equity lines of credit. So theoretically, you've got a bunch of wealth in American homes that can't even be tapped right now. So the, the transmission mechanism at the Fed is broken, and yet they're relying on models that tell them that they're not broken. So they keep trying to give the patient more and more of the same medicine and the only thing that it's doing is keeping zombie companies. Now we've got Jim, it's a good friend. He's done great work. We kind of came into this with 14%. Now we're pushing 20% of uh, firms that are zombies. And that's the only thing the Fed is doing right now. They're just creating more and more zombie farms. Carnival Cruise Corporation had its second downgrade. It's yet another fallen angel, but it's post March the 22nd. So it's technically eligible for the Fed's programs. So the Fed is doing a lot for the top 1%. The Fed is helping private equity not get buried in some very bad investments that they've made. They're helping the wealthy stay wealthier. All, all of the things that we talk about that are not societal in nature anymore. The inequality divide has manifested and become something very economical. Again, if, if the Fed's not even going to recognize that they're complicit in widening the inequality divide, you don't even get off the starting gate. And of course, I think they say that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different outcome. And that's Seems to be what they, I mean, do you really think that inside when they have their meetings, they believe their own kind of, uh, can I say the, uh, their own actions? I mean, do they really believe they're doing the right thing? Or they is they really do. Okay, they really do. Okay. No, no, they really do. Uh, it, there are occasional voices of reason. Jay Powell was one of them. Mm -hmm. He read my markets briefings that got under the skin of Bill Dudley and Timothy Geithner. They hated the work that I did for Fisher all those years ago, but Powell didn't. He appreciated it in, in October 2012. He'd only been on the Federal Reserve Board for two or three months at that point. It was one of his first FOMC meetings, and he said that the Federal Reserve's policy of quantitative easing was inflating a duration bubble across the entire credit spectrum and that quantitative easing could become habit-forming, and that if and when the time came to try and extricate themselves and normalize interest rates, he was in the driver's seat trying to do that and to shrink the size of the Fed's balance sheet, that it could be problematic. Well, he discovered what problematic was when the U.S. high-yield bond market shut down for a record 41 days between November the 14th on, which caused all the world regulators, the BIS, everybody collateral backing all of these ETFs was trading by appointment only, spreads gapped out, re redemptions went through the roof, and then we had the Powell pivot. So, But he understood what the Fed was creating, the monster that the Fed was creating when he was a rookie at the Fed back in 2012. I mean, before, uh, Rob, you jo join in, I just have had another question uh, relating to that, and that is, I mean, do you really think they have a choice? I mean, I know we have right now feel that they are doing things that we would not think is the right thing to do, but but I wonder if they really have a true choice of doing something different. No, uh, I think that Jay Powell understands if you were to say, Jay Powell, what's a Landis bank? Right. He would have an answer. 
he would be able to tell you that that was the first place that systemic risk popped up in the subprime crisis. I had never heard of a Landis Bank. I had no idea what it was. I had to look it up, and I'm like, small German real estate banks. I'm like, how interesting and novel. But there it was. And what he discovered when the bond market shut down for 41 days was that he had no idea where systemic risk was, was going to pop up. And I think that he's realizing that now, the interconnectivity of the global financial system, the reliance on dollar funding, the, the explosion of the corporate debt market in the emerging markets. These are things that the BIS, that the Fed, that that no central bank has ever had to contend with and the black box of God knows what in the Chinese bond market. But we do know that there are interrelationships and that systemic risk is grounded in the U.S. corporate bond market. And he knows that as long as he keeps the move index at under wraps, mm. that is that he, he could care less about the VIX. He, all he's watching is move. That's it every day. I think I'll let uh, Moritz discuss uh, Landers Bank a bit further if he wants to, as that's his <laughs> geographical <laughs> speciality. And I'd certainly like to talk about inequality a bit more later because that, that's something that I don't think it's talked about enough. But just sticking with the theme that, that Moritz was talking about, about how well the Fed's doing, I mean, one thing I found striking this time compared to 2008 was the VIX reached similar levels, you know, mid to high 80s VIX spot. But if you look at the, the high yield spread over treasuries, I think last time around it got to about 20%. And this time around, I think it hit about 9% and now it's down to about 6 So at least from that perspective, you could argue that it's having some effect. I mean, the transmission mechanism is not working, but it's better than doing nothing, right? I think we can agree that. It is better than doing nothing, but uh, I do believe that buying high-yield bonds was a mistake. Okay. Please, please expand on that. <laughs> well, uh, what you're watching right now is the Fed fighting credit rating agencies. There's like a real live battle going on. You're watching, we in the same exact week in time, we've had record defaults, record bankruptcies, and record high-yield bond issuance. That means that it literally, the, the arbiters of credit right now are losing in their battle to the Fed because the Fed keeps feeding junk bonds liquidity, which is buying them yet another day. But you can give a company as much leverage as you want, but you cannot print cash flow for that company. We're looking at the Q2 as being down 11 plus percent on the top line revenue for, for the S&P 500. These are indisputable, undeniable facts. And as um, two of my mantras that run around on Twitter, you can't print jobs and you can't print cash flow. And But the Fed is trying to make sure that that they keep the other side. It's it's it's. It, it's a candle that's burning at both ends. Uh, and the Fed is has completely succeeded in bringing spreads back in. If you look at the aggregate borrowing rate across the entire corporate spectrum, you're pushing 2%. These are all-time low borrowing yields uh, that companies are able to, to, to take advantage of. But by the same exact token, you, he's not stopping the bankruptcies. And he's not going to stop the bankruptcies. So you're going to have, you've got compressed spreads and high default rates. They're going to have to go back for business schools and rewrite everything. I just want to make one point, Danielle, and, and you've just brought that up. So this is very spontaneous. You said the people at the Fed, they really believe in their models. Huh. My question is, why is that? Because, you know, I think Rob and I, we've studied economics, but, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, not all of that is pointless, but to a certain extent, it's kind of like this fantasy science where, yeah, you have all these models, but none of them really work. 
and we went into systematic trading and we figured out, well, you know, all of that modeling, yeah, you believe in the lock normal distribution of asset prices, good luck with that. There's something else going on, right? We, we don't believe in Santa Claus, we don't believe in the efficient market hypothesis. So why do we have all these people at the Fed, apparently, as you say, if, if I understood you correctly, uh, hugging their models and why is there not a, say, greater openness of people inside those institutions to really look at the reality and the practicalities of life and say, you know, those models, they really don't work. They're just models. So I'm going to tell you a story. Um, Jim Bianco and I were up in Maine at an annual economics gathering put together by David Kotak. And um, we spent an afternoon in a canoe fishing trying to figure out why Stanley Fisher, the godfather of central banking, would have come out of retirement in order to become vice chair, person number two at the Federal Reserve. And our conclusion was that, I mean, I, I, I had internal scuttlebutt at the time, and it's Chatham House rules, but now it's in Fed Up, so who cares? But at the time, there was concern that the board at, at the San Francisco Fed was a little worried about bringing Janet Yellen in in front of Wells Fargo because she knew so little about the financial system and she knew so little, little about banking. So. At the end of three hours of fishing, Jim and I concluded that it was the financial stability function that had brought Stanley Fisher out of retirement into the Fed so that he could shepherd, if you will, the global financial system because Janet Yellen wasn't capable. Actually, that maybe, I'm sorry, I've got my Fed shares off. Ben Bernanke was not. Anyways, long story short, Stanley Fisher's first FOMC meeting, he stands up and he asks the room, why does the Fed use the PCE or the core PCE? Why do they use an inflation metric that does not apply on planet Earth? Why don't they use the CPI, the, C the headline CPI? That's what my inflation rate is. That's what my children's inflation rate is. Why don't we use the CPI? So a very intrepid Fed staffer raised his hand in the back of the room, and he said, if we don't use the PCE, all of our models break. At which point, Jim Bullard raised his hand and said, let me understand, this is how we make monetary policy, crap in, crap out. So when I was at the Fed, in the heat of the crisis, we started doing internal studies on why the core PCE had led the Fed astray, didn't prepare them for the crisis. It was determined internally that they needed to come up with a new inflation metric so that they weren't sideswiped again. And after much soul searching, what they decided to do was nothing. And they kept a broken metric that uses Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement rates to impute the most second largest input into inflation, which is nothing. It's not even in the same zip code as, as what most Americans spend on, on health care. They, they know, and it's, it's, it's an open secret, that the way that they measure housing and rental is also completely broken. But again, if they don't have these models, they're not able to hide behind the 2% target. They would have had to normalize interest rates at a much faster pace, and they know it. So for them, it's figuring out how to stay lower for longer after they blow up the financial system each time. And the way that they were able to accomplish that in the QE era was by hiding behind the PCE. So they're hiding behind their models. They're driving that broken car, essentially. But... It's probably because they're also independent and above everything that there's no external forces uh, kind of like, you know, pushing them to change things. Well, they're not independent anymore. Well, it's changing, I guess, right? No, it's, it's not changed. The Treasury Department of the United States did a leveraged buyout of the Federal Reserve Bank using Enron-style accounting, setting up special purpose vehicles on its balance sheet so that the Federal Reserve could violate the 1913 original act. 
So it's done. Mnuchin gets a say in who gets the money. It's post facto. Talk to Jim about it. Is the Fed uniquely bad in terms of this kind of head in the sand, just believing in their own models? Or is, I mean, I've met quite a few central bankers, and I, I think they do tend to become a bit institutionalized and stay in the same place. And you're, you're obviously an honorable exception who's escaped and kind of get stuck in that group thing and that mindset. I mean, are we being unfair on the Fed here? Is that just, this is just a problem for central bankers all over the world? I think that, that, that there are good people inside the Fed who do good work. One of them was my mentor, Harvey Rosenblum. He was 40 years, director of research, right under Richard Fisher. And towards the end of his career, he hired me. And we, we had lunch as he was retiring. And he said, if there's one regret that I have over my career, it is not making the PhDs and the research staff do work that is applicable to making monetary policy. They basically come in to the Fed with their dissertation in hand, and they spend the rest of their careers building up their pensions, redoing their dissertation and working in that body, whether or not that body of work is applicable to monetary policy and what what the FOMC needs in order to operate is irrelevant. And that is that is why I've, I've always advocated for getting rid of at least 50% of the PhDs at the Fed. If I, you know, if you're, if you're God for one day, Danielle, where would you start? And I would, you know, blow up Minneapolis, blow up St. Louis, blow up Kansas City. They're irrelevant. They have nothing to do with the U.S. economy anymore. Janet Yellen clearly lost, and, and, and even her successor, with Wells Fargo blowing up and all the subprime mess. So you need another district bank out on the West Coast and then get rid of half the PhDs. What's also, to me, quite interesting is that central banks seem to have their, you know, their different ways of measuring inflation anyways, right? I mean, the ECB doesn't even include housing costs as far as I remember. And so, I mean, it's just crazy anyways, uh, how this works. But speaking about your side of the pond and our side of the pond, I mean, obviously what we do know is that central banks are, are working very hard. They're working overtime uh, on on their uh, bond purchases and and so on and so forth. And at the moment, that that I guess the word at the, on the street is yield curve control. I mean, that's clearly something that's either have started or is is coming uh, very soon. But one of the things that actually surprised me a little bit, something I discovered recently, because we think about, you know, what could happen, and I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit later when we talk more about inflation. But you know, what could actually happen for? bond yields to suddenly start to go up. I mean, they've been going down for 35 years. I mean, what's going to what's gonna take to change that? And we think about, okay, well, inflation, that might be be the trick and, and so on and so forth. But in Europe, for example, as far as I know, less than 20%, and it's probably even lower now, but less than 20% of the German government bonds are free float. The rest is owned by the ECB. So I know it's different in the US. You still have a lot of publicly owned or privately owned, whatever you call it, um, bonds. But where's the pressure going to come from? We know it's not going to come in Japan. I mean, they own their own stuff like the ECB. They've been doing this for a while. So it's really only the US that seems to maybe be facing the the bond vigilantes, as I think Jim called them. You know, when they start speaking with the same voice, they could put pressure on, on, on the Fed. At the moment, they're not. But I'm thinking about sort of more global things. I mean, government bonds is not something that a lot of people own anymore, so to speak. Well, so in the hands of the public is about 70 some odd percent, I want to say. In the um, U.S. In the U.S. Yeah. And uh, more than a third of that, I think 36 percent, I calculated it recently, is held by foreigners, foreign ownership. Okay. So we are decidedly 
beholden to the kindness of strangers, so to speak. And because we're already running de facto modern monetary theory here in the United States, we're giving people $600 more a week. Trump is worried he's going to lose the election, so he's going to come up with a stimulus package that's going to make Nancy Pelosi blush, but not call it that. He'll call it austerity, but it'll be huge. But right now, we're already running basically socialism in the United States for all intents and purposes. And that is where you start to get into running up debts and deficits at such a fast pace while they're saber rattling, while we're alienating the rest of our allies, uh, such that there is the risk. People don't believe it could ever happen. But if you were to have foreign buyers step back from treasury auctions, we've just seen the two largest months on record of declines in the ticks data in, in, in terms of foreigners selling their treasuries off. A lot of that had to do with the Fed was more than offsetting that, so there, it didn't even cause a ripple in the bond market. But you could have a situation where you go from presuming that the reserve currency status will always hold bond yields in place to flipping a switch one day and having uh, going to, to see bond rates spike overnight. Nobody believes it can happen. It's, it's the impossible. I laugh that they even talk about yield curve control. What are they going to control exactly? I mean, it's things are on the ground. Are they going to say that the benchmark 10-year can't go above 0.5? I mean, maybe they could control that uh, because it's they don't have to worry about 1%. They don't have to worry about a round figure. But again, we are printing money. And the reason that the debt ceiling was resolved as peacefully as it was, was not because Trump and Pelosi and Schumer all of a sudden were friendly with one another. That had nothing to do with it. It had to do with the very quiet writing into the, the language that there's no cap on debt spending, deficit spending through June of 2021. Mm -hmm. So whoever gets elected, basically, can spend whatever they want, put whatever they want into law. There's absolutely no cap through a year from now. I think that that is something that foreign holders of our treasuries are aware of. I, I was running a, a fixed income portfolio until a few years ago, and um, I remember everyone saying, you know, well, there's no way that U.S. tenure rates can go below X, where X was 3%, and then it was 25 then it was 2%. And now maybe it's 50 basis points. So, I mean, you just have to look at Japan to know that they can always go lower. But there's probably not really much difference in, 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 a, in a 50 basis point and a zero rate, to be honest. It's not really going to make a lot of difference. But, you know, I guess the end game for this naively is inflation, right? Which would make this crisis pretty much unique in that, you know, after 1929, there was a massive deflation. I think there's, there's mild deflation after the mild recessions you already talked about. And in 2008, there was, there was a, a fair bit of deflation, although quite short-lived because they, they did come in and, and kind of uh, rescue the economy. So is that how you how you, you see things playing out um, this time? And, and how will that affect, you know, the, the, the US dollar specifically versus other countries? Because if I just look at the, the fiscal response since the coronavirus started, I think, you know, as a percentage of GDP, the US is way up there compared to the EU and, and Britain, I think is lagging quite, quite some way behind. I think we're, our response is something like four or five percent of GDP and you guys are running it right. two, three times that. So in a relative sense, you know, what, what would this potentially do, do in terms of currency valuations as well? Well, and I mean, that answering that question requires coming up with an alternative to, to the dollar. And I think that that is where the world constantly gets tripped up. It's that there's, there's, if, if there's no alternative to stocks, there's, there's still no alternative to the dollar. But there is something to be said for the Chinese and how they fit into this dynamic if we go from having a constant, because we've been in a constant currency war, 
It's just, it's been decades long of this currency war going on in the background. That's what QE is. That's what blowing up these balance sheets effectively is, is trying to stay competitive on the global stage by devaluing your currency. The only way I can see that not working anymore is if China was to step back and, uh, and not agree to go along with the growth in the U.S. debt deficit. And that's, that's when you start to talk about end games and debt jubilees. And, but these are real discussions that have to be had because if you ask most PhDs in economics what is going to happen in the event that there truly is an untenable level of debt worldwide, it's, the answer is always a debt jubilee. But a debt jubilee is a, jubilee is a very happy word. It, it, it denotes people agreeing to, to go this path in order implicitly to, kin, to, to keep the dollar in its reserve currency position. And if it comes down to that, I can't see that happening. Hmm. I'd actually like to, uh, maybe that would be a really good answer, but um, going back one step, you've mentioned the 2% inflation target. And really, I mean, you've been inside the Fed. I was always wondering... Why is there a 2% inflation target? Wouldn't a 0% inflation target be so much better? You just quoted Alan Greenspan. So who came up with that idea? You literally just quoted Alan Greenspan. Yeah, so I, I didn't know that. But I, it seems to me like, you know, um, why, why are we having this target which devalues our money over time? And if you only do it for like 10 years and you compound 2% at 10 years, that's already more than 20%. If you do it for 20 years, right, we're probably getting close to 50 or something like that. So 20 years is within all of our, that, that, that's our lives, right? So we're, we're essentially, our models are saying, well, we're going to be losing half the value, half of the purchasing power over a 20-year time span. I've, I just found that ridiculous. So who came up with that stuff? And why is it not zero? So um, it was the Ben and Janet show internally. Alan Greenspan was adamantly opposed to it. He is, it's, it's, there's, it's in an FOMC transcript. And he has said the absolute best inflation target as far as whether it's from the perspective of a household or a business is zero. And it should always be zero. And Janet Yellen and Ben Bernanke were fighting and fighting and fighting for this 2% target for years. But it wasn't until Alan Greenspan left the Fed that they were able to actually implement it. If you recall at the same time, uh, along, the, along the lines of making really stupid decisions, they, they implemented a, an employment rate target as well which they kept moving down and down and down and down because it was also completely senseless. But sadly though, it has now been adopted by global banks around the world. They've all got their targets. And again, these targets are nothing more than an excuse to hide behind printing money. It is, they, to me at least, they are very administrative in, they have a utilitarian utilitarian role that they play within central banks in a world of growing balance sheets. Because if you had a zero percent inflation target, you would have to turn off the printing press. I just interject with a with a quick um, correction of facts. I believe that we had inflation targeting in the UK for about ten years before the US. But anyway, that's besides the point. But in the but in the United States, it was definitely a huge subject oh, yeah, definitely. of debate. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, and yeah. I, that, that's when I was in, inside the Fed. Yeah. And it was a hot, hot, hot subject. Yeah. And again, in, until Greenspan left, it was a non-starter. Sorry, Moritz. O'Neill's back to you guys. No, that's fine. That's fine. Just maybe shifting gear a little bit, but still staying on the same topic about, I mean, how does, does all of this 
come about at some point. I mean, uh, we talk about different cycles. I, I don't know whether you subscribe to Ray Dalio's big you know, long-term debt cycles, et cetera, et cetera. But another cycle that is of interest, something that the three of us have talked about on the podcast recently is demographics and more specifically the fourth turning. I mean, gener- you know, generational cycles and from the book written 30 years ago where they foresaw that around 2005, okay, it became 2008, the fourth turning kind of started. We probably have it with us for the next 10 years or so. And and we can certainly see a lot of the similarities from previous times. But the, the point is, all these fourth turnings end up in either hot war or revolution or something along those lines. And there's certainly, uh, you know, a lot of geopolitical stuff going on right now that could... Um, Ignite, let's put it that way, this time around ending. I mean, even in the U.S., I guess you're close to it. You could certainly say that there is uh, not just civil unrest, there's uncivil unrest uh, going on. Does this end like all the other fourth turnings, do you think? I think that what is most hopeful for Americans in the middle right now is that there's more clarity than we had going into 2008. There's a better appreciation for the role that the Federal Reserve plays. I think that if there is any time in US history that there is going to be a revolution, I think it's, it's going to be now. And I don't say revolution, guns in the street, God forbid, but I'm talking about a large enough percentage of the population who feels that on November the 3rd, they have no choice that they can make. And so they are completely unrepresented and it, I, I don't speak as a radical. I'm not speaking out of turn. My opinion is widely shared right now. There are several movements that are coming from very rational, calm, successful people. I'm not talking about the private equity billionaires. I'm not. They're they're special. I'm not. Let's put it this way: none of them go to Davos. But there is a movement about in the United States for there to be a a pathway forward that does not involve the way government is run today. And I think that it is grounded in the fact that decimating the middle class for decades has now left such a disproportionate amount of people in the lowest income brackets, as well as this gigantic sector of America that wants modern monetary theory, that wants to get paid to not work, that advocates for socialism even though they can't define it. And so, but 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 if you go around the far left and the far right, I think that you're gaining critical mass in the United States that could be sufficient to bring about true change in Washington, D.C. And that is the first time that that, that can be said in, in my mother's life, who is in her... 70s and lived through the civil rights movement. She's she's telling me she's never seen anything like this and that she's hopeful at the same time because again on election day millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of Americans will go to the polls with no choice to make. I mean it's quite interesting so I'm Danish by background but I live in Switzerland I've been living here for a long time and uh, as as you know we we vote on everything that's direct democracy and actually in Switzerland there has been a vote, and I can't remember if it was just a few of the cantons, but within the last three or four years, I would say we had a vote on universal basic income. So some cantons would want it to have this, you know, I think it was like two and a half thousand francs a, a month. It was voted down. But but it is, it's so unique to, to see how this political system works compared to others. And of course, I share your view and hope 
that this will end peacefully, although history tells us differently. But on the other hand, as far as I remember from, from kind of the fourth turning analysis, is that, you know, this is the period where a third party may rise and, and come. But I wonder, I mean, was Trump not that third party, so to speak? Oh. I mean, he came from the outside and oh. but got adopted by the right? I no. Don't know. no, no, no. Okay. When you have elections of people who, when somebody gets elected because somebody is voting against somebody, that's not a revolution. Right. That's just a backlash. And right now you have three Republican political action committees in the United States that are raising money to elect Biden. That's also not a revolution. It's just a backlash. It's just a vote for change or making sure that that person doesn't get elected. But that, that still leaves most of the conservative-leaning, raised Republican, GOP, fiscally conservative, do, doesn't believe in all these, still leaves a whole bunch of people with no voice mm. if Biden comes into office and immediately imposes universal basic income. Right. And of course, he can spend for the first year or so. As June, said, June 2021, yeah. unfettered. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I think, um, unfortunately, the experience of direct democracy, especially to do with kind of uh, spending money in places like California, is uh, not great. <laughs> because obviously, they, they ended up with their, the hands tied behind their back in terms of what they could do uh, for the budget and uh, sort of built in uh, deficit effectively from that. But anyway... Maybe the Danes are just more sensible than the rest of us. No, it's the Swiss. It is the Swiss that has direct democracy. But, the Finns, but, but, but Finland already went through the experiment. They, they passed it and it yeah. failed. Yeah. They were the people on universal basic income. There was a small subsector. They were happier, but the employment rate didn't do anything. So right. <laughs> it just kind of was dead in the water. I mean, we've got real life experience with this. Yeah. Direct democracy didn't work too well with Brexit in the UK, but that, that is a definitely another another discussion. So just rowing back slightly from the politics, I did say earlier, I, I liked your mention of inequality and the, the Fed's policy is perpetuating inequality. So I guess we've kind, we've kind of, QE has increased asset prices, which is great if you own assets. That's been really pretty poor for inequality. The, you know, the changes in, in, in the US taxation system under Trump, I think most people would agree have been pretty regressive. And I think you've actually yourself written about the fact that COVID has been really bad for inequality as an event. So I think there's various kind of axes we can look at this upon. We can obviously look at race, which is very topical at the moment, obviously. We can look at gender. Women's incomes have generally been hurt more by this crisis. And we can go back to demographics as well, because it's the baby boomers. They've, they've got the assets and maybe more of them work in, in safer jobs. And, and um, they weren't the first in line to, to be fired, which the, the younger generations possibly were. So... It does feel like all of these kind of axes of inequality are kind of all happening at the same time. And, you know, you can be pessimistic like Niels and say there's going to be a war or you can be optimistic and hope there's going to be change. I don't know. I, I what, are you, what are your thoughts? I mean, so if you don't think what the Fed's doing right now is great for inequality, and I don't think it is, you think that, you know, basic income is, is a non-starter. So, so what are we left with? Well, we're left with change. Um, we're, we're truly left but with a change, third party. Change to what? Change to what, though? To, 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 well, let me put it this way. There used to be lines of demarcation. The Republicans in the United States used to be the party of business. And they were the ones who were always on the side of capitalism. And you think of Reagan. and That changed a few generations ago with Clinton, who people forget that Bill Clinton did the most cutting welfare reform in the history of the United States. That's a Democratic president. When the Democrats moved over to the side of commerce and 
it ended up being the Democrats and the Federal Reserve and the Republicans all working in favor of commerce. You'll note that Wall Street gave more money to the Democratic Party in recent elections than it has to the Republican Party because it knows the Democratic Party is in its pocket. But what that means, and the reason that this has widened the inequality gap as much as it has, is because the traditional voice of those in need, the, tra the traditional voice of the up-and-comers, of small businesses in America. We used to have 50% of jobs in America that were at small businesses. That came down to 47% pre-COVID. I would argue that that's going to be cut in half again. Massive tragedy for when you what you think of as being the, the American dream, innovation, because nobody's been there for the small business. If you look at the Fed's facilities, they've barely been used, barely, 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 but the swap, the, the swap lines. But as, a, as, as far as the facilities that they've created, they've barely been taken up. Illinois has got $1.2 billion of, of debt out to the, the Fed's municipal program because it was gonna melt off the planet because its pension's so bad and its politicians are so corrupt. But nobody has been there for the, for the little guy for generations since Bill Clinton was in office. And that is what has really made the inequality divide that much worse. And then you put Fed policy on top of it. That's why I say it's a third party to speak for the people who the Democratic Party used to speak for and to speak for the middle class that used to be represented by the Republican Party. I mean, revolution is, I can't see myself taking up a gun, so I hope it doesn't come down to that. But whatever it takes to get representation for the taxation is what is going to be required. And I think that there is enough of a movement. I mean, we are tired of seeing children left behind in the public school system and paying these huge taxes. If we don't if we don't educate our youth, there's never going to be a way out, a way out of this vicious cycle of poverty and indebtedness in America. And that is a drag on the overall economy that makes us that much less competitive with China. So all of us being traders, I mean, at least at least I am particularly interested in what your outlook for markets are going forward. And, you know, we may start with things such as gold. Everybody seems to have an opinion on gold. Most of the opinions that I hear is bullish gold. I'm not sure if you agree, but what about bonds, equities and other things, credit, Bitcoin? What do you think? I mean, how would you position yourself? Well, I, I can tell you how I am positioned rather than telling you how that's, I would. That, that's, that's even better. We invest in startup companies, direct seed money, large, huge positions. Um, just talking about my household, large position in gold, um, large position in a volatility fund and municipal bonds. And that's it. Soup to nuts. Sounds like a classic kind of Talebian sort of barbell portfolio, doesn't it? With, I'm assuming that volatility fund is long volatility. Yes, it is. Yeah, it's tower protection. Yeah. But he plays, this is Artemis Capital, Christopher Cole, one of my, uh, he's, just, he's just shut up brilliant. If you've never interviewed him, just you need to set aside two he's hours. He's been on the podcast a couple of times, okay. yeah. He, we, we like Chris, yeah. Yes, Chris is um, extremely frustrated because from the perspective of a trader right now, you're fighting right now the Fed, and you're never supposed to fight the Fed, and you're fighting a socialist in the White House. So you know the stimulus that's coming is going to be enormous. 
And that's why we don't have rising automobile delinquencies. That's why ABS investors have been covered. That's why we haven't seen car repossessions. That's why we haven't seen rental evictions. We haven't seen mortgage defaults. We haven't seen foreclosures. We haven't seen any of the things that you would normally see with unemployment at, what did I say, 18.6% in America? And yet we don't have any of these things because of the stimulus measures. So your credit cycle's not playing out, except for companies that are defaulting. I, I mean, I think there were three companies that have defaulted in the last 24 hours. One of your Real Vision friends, another one, I guess, Raul Powell, he talks about these three phases that that he sees. I can't remember the wording for it, but it's like the unravel, which we've kind of been in. And then you have the hope phase where we hope it goes back to normal. And then comes the kind of insolvency phase. But do you sort of kind of subscribe to that vision that that's where we're heading, that at some point soon, as you say, you can't print jobs, you can't print cash flow. I mean, is it is the inevitable that we're just going to see a massive wave of insolvency hitting both the US and Europe for that matter? We do have insolvencies with companies of 50 million or more in debt at the highest level since 2009 currently. Yeah. So I don't think the insolvency is theoretical. I think it's practical. It's it's happening. Yeah. If I sleep for eight hours, I'm going to wake up and some company is going to be on, on the wires on Bloomberg as having filed Chapter 11. Yeah. I wanted to ask, and I know every time you ask these questions, you kind of maybe get labeled as a conspiracy theorist or, or, or whatever it's called. But I still want to ask you a little bit because you're closer to to these things. And you mentioned COVID-19. We all know about it. And I know you um, mentioned a couple of months ago on on, a, on another interview on the value attainment, you mentioned this interesting timing of when China inserted an opt-out clause in the uh, trade deal and when they announced the first case of COVID and all of these things. But I just want to sort of more broadly speaking, I mean, is COVID a real pandemic or is there more to it? Meaning, I mean, we hear so much about Bill Gates' role, uh, his connections to uh, WHO, to Dr. Fauci, to, I mean, to all of these things. And when you read the fourth turning, by the way, one of the eight scenarios that they list, and this is written 30 years ago, one of the eight scenarios that they list as how this could happen is the CDC coming out, announcing a pandemic and asking people to socially distance themselves and all of those things. I mean, it's kind of a little bit scary to to read something that is so close to what we have now. I mean, do you subscribe to any of this or is it just well, random? So. One of my fixed income subscribers, one of my institutional subscribers reached out to me randomly in early December and said, Danielle, I, I want to talk to you about COVID. And I said, okay, what, what does COVID have to do with fixed income investing? And it's a woman. She said, actually, I'm a 20-year veteran epidemiologist. I said, oh, well, and I picked up the phone and called. And two hours later, I got off the phone with her. And having somebody explain that something has coronavirus attributes and HIV attributes and tell you, and, and she's not a conspiracy theorist, she's just an epidemiologist by training, and say that this is not something that occurs in nature, is very unsettling. And we've seen in different demographics in younger people how it plays out in the body and starts to attack the organs the way that HIV does. So it, it's not a pure coronavirus in the way it manifests physiologically. That's undeniable. It's it's documented, and um, so I. It, it is bothersome to me, because scientists can't figure it out, 
It was bothersome to me that Carrie Lam came out when there was the first coronavirus case in Hong Kong and told the people of Hong Kong to not wear masks. They did. They got the, they had a grassroots campaign. They came together as they're pretty good at grassroots campaigns at this point. They came together and they all wore masks and they've not paid the price with human lives. Our government came out initially and said, don't wear masks. And now masks have been weaponized and politicized. And where I am in Texas, you know, I, I'm a prisoner in my own home. I can't go out because there are so many Trump supporters where I live who feel like if even if they want to put a mask on, if they do put a mask on, they're saying to the public that they don't support their leader anymore. So they don't. So it's just insane that this thing has been politicized in my view and the fact that forget the Chinese knowing about it. The first case in Wuhan was November the 17th that we know of. Mm -hmm. Taiwan canceled major games in Wuhan in early December. So it was off the mainland by then. And of course, the trade deal wasn't signed until January the 15th. Pre President Trump had in internal briefings in early January before he signed the trade deal. So the trade deal was signed with full knowledge of both parties with the unintended circumstances out clause with the coronavirus known on both sides. It was just a pure political ploy because both sides knew that they could get out of it. But beyond that, the whole mask issue and hearing people of power say don't wear masks, to me it's just, especially now that people feel like they're being hurt by it, it is extremely political, politically disruptive. It is making COVID in the United States a much more political and deeply economic event than it is going to be in other countries. If you look at Germany and its reopening and you look at Germany's curve, it goes up very high, it comes down very low. And now if you look at open table reservations in Munich and Berlin, they're ticking up slowly as opposed to what's happened in states that reopened prematurely in the United States because they were doing it for political reasons to stand behind the president. And now we've seen the reservations in Atlanta, Georgia, and in Dallas, Texas, they went they went straight up as, as the economy reopened and they've come crashing straight back down as the economy has reclosed. And this will have severe circumstances, again, for small business owners in these areas who are affected but not backstopped by any decent legislation. The people who are backstopped are the people who make nothing and who get money and who are making more money right now to stay on the sidelines and not work, and the people who have investments. And the people in between, again, are absolutely not represented, whether you're talking about fiscal stimulus measures, the Federal Reserve policy, there's nobody there for them. I have a bit of a word association. Whenever, whenever Niels mentions conspiracy theories, my, I immediately think about cryptocurrency because uh, most of the people who follow, follow me on Twitter and are into Bitcoin also, for some reason, I don't know why, are also quite keen on conspiracy theories. So mm -hmm. I'm going I'm to, uh, let, let's talk about cryptocurrency because uh, some of our other guests have said that, you know, the, the kind of way out of this uh, potential um, massive inflation uh, of a fiat currency will be some kind of central bank issued digital currency. And it would seem remiss of us not to ask someone who's so well connected within the central bank world like yourself to, to ask you, you know, firstly, what do you personally think about that? And secondly, given your any discussions you've had with, with people who are still in, you know, insiders, how likely and realistic is that? Well, when you write a book that subtitle is why the Federal Reserve is bad for America, you don't have many discussions with people on the inside after that. Just FYI. Um, <laughs> 
but I, I but it was already a, a point of discussion years ago, and it was much more of a national security discussion inside of the Fed. The first three countries to adopt cryptocurrency were Venezuela, China, and Russia. And so the Bank of England immediately took up the discussion. And I, th I think that there is a, a presumption within the Federal Reserve that at some point we will have Fed coin. And it's, it's an inevitability. It's, it's also a technological inevitability. And COVID has put that into high gear as well, turbocharged the need for as, as little uh, tactile transacting as, as possible uh, between humans. So I, I think that it's not necessarily economical the way that it is mined, so to speak. I'm not a Bitcoin expert, never tried to be, and they're all over my Twitter feed, whether I want them to be or not. But I do think that it is inevitable. I don't like the aspect of it. Jay Powell's adamantly opposed to, to Fedcoin. But the part that's unsettling and the reason that China, Venezuela, and Russia were, were the pioneers, if you will, is because they want to use it as a means to monitor the citizenry. That's bothersome to me. That's about as anti-American as you get. But so is a lot of stuff in the country right now. Is there also a degree of the Chinese, for example, wanting to develop this currency to kind of break the, the deadlock that the U.S. has, the U.S. dollar has on, on uh, you know, global trade and, and allowing the, the U.S. to sort of fund itself? I think that that's the same discussion that you would have, whether you're talking about the physical yuan or a Chinese cryptocurrency. You still have to trust the other side of the party. And I still think that there's very little in the way of trust and the idea of being a store of value, putting confidence in the Chinese, given that they're everything, given everything. I mean, it would be an opportunity for another nation to come up with whatever their Fed coin's going to be if they make it a real hard Fed coin, not a weak Fed coin where the algorithm allows for inflation. Of course, I know this is what everybody wants, right? Where they still have the control and they can do whatever they want with that thing. But if they did it Bitcoin type of style where there is a, a cap on the amount of coins that can ever be issued, something like that, that could be competition to the US dollar, right? If somebody went shopping with that one saying like, look, here's the thing, we're not going to be inflating that away. How about we trade in that one? All right. That's the marriage of gold and crypto, what you're yep. describing. You're, you're yep. describing the, the, the perfect modern disciplined form of currency. That's utopia. Well, I'm not sure it is because, you know, the if you do it with crypto, I mean, yeah, Bitcoin may be energy intensive to mine and all of that, and maybe that's getting more efficient, but at least you don't have to dig it out of a hole, right? You don't have to mine it and use lots of energies in order to, you know, extract it and all of that type of stuff, and then you store it. It's it, it's much more efficient in that regard. Well, it's, it's so modern. You could, yeah. yeah, exactly. So you'd, you could come up with that and say, you know what, there is a limit to that. This is in the algorithm. There is a limit. There's going to be that many Fed coins, right? But no more. Let's deal with it. Well, look, if we manage another four years of alienating all of our allies, then that could very possibly happen. Yeah, I think so. Well, the other thing, I guess, is that with the um, you know policies we've seen in the last 10 years with interest rates, certainly in Europe for a while now, been at zero or below, I mean, it's killing the banking system anyways. I mean, it will end up that we all become, you know, clients of the central bank because there will be no real banking system underneath it. That's exactly right. And the one thing that I will give Jay Powell credit for is holding the line on negative interest rates. So, and 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 it's clear from listening to everybody on the committee and every district president that there is there's unity and, and that they're a cohesive, solid front against negative interest rates. I mean, you don't have to be a 
a rocket scientist. You don't. You just need to look at the Euro stocks index, look at what's happened to Japanese banks and say, oh, wait, sorry, that failed and walk away. And I get that. But if you look at some of these short-term interest rate futures, I mean, they are flirting with, with 100, right? They're flirting with negative rates. And, and we know how markets often, I don't, maybe I wouldn't say often, but sometimes at least, they kind of force the hand of, of, of the central bank at the end. Personally, I actually think we could end up with a you know surprise appearance of inflation, so that might save them. But failing that, it could be tough for them to hold on to that stance. If the confidence in the Fed put was to degrade, then that would right. be that would be it would be problematic if we were to have everything step back again. I mean, it, you may recall that during the heat of after the onset of, of of the crisis, there were times in Asian trading that you could not get. You, you could not transact in, in the in the long bond. Treasuries dried up in the middle of the night, mysteriously. I mean, we, we saw this is the world's risk-free asset, and you couldn't trade them in Asia. It was bizarre. It was terrible. And it freaked out Jay Powell with, with good reason. Yeah, I mean, we, you've, you've kind of touched upon this also with the, uh, you know, Powell pivot in, in 2018. But my, my last question, just generally speaking, uh, would be, is there an Achilles heel somewhere in all of this system? You know, we it's so interconnected, it's so integrated. They're all trying to manage things. And maybe, okay, maybe the, the pressure valve will be the currencies. And that's where we're going to see the volatility after a quiet period for a few years. Who knows? But they're trying to manage equities. They're trying to manage fixed income. But I mean, in doing so, they rely on certain things. I mean, we have clearing systems, uh, margin, whatever. I mean, is there a some kind of an Achilles heel that, that could break this party? I don't know where systemic risk is. Okay. I truly don't. Um, I would say that the leverage loan market, the private debt market, the junk hiding inside of investment grade, if, if you add it all up, you get to something that is much bigger than what subprime was at the time. And it's definitely global in that you've got Japanese banks with high concentrations of this garbage on their balance sheet, uh, and it doesn't trade. And there's, there all, none of them have covenants either. So when something occurs with one of these pieces of paper, it is such a gap opens up. It's like this big vacuum sound, and you're like, "Bunk!" It went from ninety to twenty cents on the on the dollar. And again, the private debt market is seven hundred and fifty, seven hundred and sixty billion dollars outstanding. And we knew that coming into this, that the small and medium enter enterprises had more debt on hand than large companies, which is saying something. So I do think that the hidden leverage in non-financial debt in the United States is very problematic. When you look at corporate debt market and you say that that's 48% of GDP, but then you look at non-financial debt, which is almost upwards of 16.5 trillion or so, that's 75% of GDP. So there's 25% of GDP that's fairly invisible to the public investor. And it's scattered throughout the economy. And some of it's been securitized, some of it's not. But my point is, we don't know what it's going to do or how it's going to behave uh, in a world where all of these debt instruments were, were created because you couldn't get yield from anything. So investment bankers did what they do. They got very creative 
over the last five years especially. And uh, a lot of the real estate deals as well. I mean, it's absolutely, a tr nobody's even paying attention to TREP right now. We're seeing multifamily delinquencies go up. That should theoretically be impossible, demographically speaking, in the United States. However, you're seeing de-urbanization in the United States, which implies that the 82% of apartments in America that were constructed over the past decade for luxury are not going to be occupied. And it's attached to an office real estate. These, the valuations of these are through the roof. And again, they've also been securitized. So that would be my only guess, is that it's the mm. debt that you don't readily see that you wouldn't pick up or you would say, there's a QCIP for that. It's that that kind of worries me because I don't know what it is. I just know it's really big, 25% of GDP. Yeah. No, I mean, that is definitely, and there were many other topics we didn't even get started on, but we do want to respect your time, Danielle. So thank you ever so much for spending some of your afternoon with us. We really do appreciate it, as I'm sure all our listeners do. And by the way, make sure you follow and subscribe to Danielle's work on Twitter and Quill Intelligence, of course. As you can tell from today's conversations, you're missing out if you don't. From Rob, Moritz and me, thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you as we continue our Global Macro miniseries. In the meantime, be well. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.